Hey everyone, before we begin this episode, we want to just thank our listeners who continue to tune into our conversations. One of the things that makes the Canine Classroom podcast unique is that we don't subscribe to one training methodology or view, and we know that many of our listeners have similar as well as different views and beliefs. We know that the conversations like today's episode are controversial because we'll be discussing the use of electric collars. As dog trainers and behavior professionals, we're hired for many reasons. Our job is to objectively look at our clients and their dogs individually. If clients choose to use certain tools with their dog, we need to objectively go over why they're using the tool, what purpose it's serving, how they're using the specific tool, if it's causing any problems or issues, or if the tool of choice is providing a better overall quality of life. This episode is not about the different dog training camps or methodologies, nor is this episode about trying to persuade you to use or not use electric collars or any tool for that matter, whether it be a harness, prong collar, head halter, etc. This episode is about listening to and hearing our guests tell her story about her dog as well as looking at the use of tools objectively. If you or someone you know is considering the use of an electric collar, we suggest you educate yourself on the potential adverse effects that can occur when using one. Make sure to educate yourself from multiple sources on how to use an electric collar thoughtfully, because as you will hear in this episode, many dog owners as well as professional dog trainers use them incorrectly, overuse them, or even abuse them. In your research and understanding how to use an electric collar thoughtfully or following the principles of a least intrusive, minimally aversive approach, you may find yourself not needing an electric collar at all. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Hey everyone, welcome to the Canine Classroom. I'm Anthony DeMarinis. I'm here at Vinny Viola, and today we have Abby White with us. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Yes, thanks for having me on. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're located? Sure. So um, I'm in the UK. I'm in the Shropshire countryside. So um, we have lots of amazing adventures out here. I've got four dogs currently. Um, So I've got three Border Collies and a Kelpie. Um, My background's primarily in agility, um, but I've sort of dabbled in other sports as well. So I've been training dogs since I was, I think I was about nine years old when we got our first dog. So yeah, ever since then, dogs have pretty much consumed my entire life. Um, I set up a business when I was 18, teaching agility and yeah, the rest is history. 
Okay. So you started in agility and um, yeah. have you competed pretty competitively? In yeah. Yeah. So my old colleague girl, um, we got to grade seven, which is like the top level in the UK in uh, kennel club agility. So we've been to crafts um, a few times and stuff. So yeah, we used to spend every single weekend away competing. It was like my entire life. Um, but I've kind of drifted away from agility a bit more now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very time consuming. <laughs> okay. What do you do instead now? Like, I know you, I see you hike a lot with your dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we hike a lot. Um, and I think now for me, it's a lot more about taking the pressure off. Um, I'm a really competitive person. Um, so I love competing, but I think the, this sort of competition world can get a little bit, a little bit much, a little bit all consuming. So um, now my focus is kind of just on enjoying my dogs. So we do a bit of herding, we do a bit of scent work, um, we do lots of tricks. Um, you know, we, we sort of just train in, in fun stuff really. And yeah, lots of hiking. Okay. Do you feel like, do you feel like for you that herding is less pressure that you're putting on them than uh, agility? Because I think um, it's questionable. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely questionable. I think for me so for, for my dog that does do herding um it's far more appropriate for him than agility was um i think it was more my dogs will pretty much do anything that i kind of want to do with them so for me it was finding something that i enjoyed that also meant i could enjoy my dogs as well without it becoming sort of too much about just the competition side mm -hmm. okay well we um want to get you on here because you had a post um right before Christmas, I think, right? Um, and it was kind of about how you decided with one of your dogs, your Kelpie in particular, on um, using a, re a uh, using an electric collar for um, recall, for off-leash stuff. So it got a lot of attention. So I figured yeah. it'd be kind of like a cool conversation to have you on and kind of hear what you had to say about it, especially... Mm -hmm especially kind of coming from the the type of training background that you have, it, it was a, an adjustment for you. I was that kind of person. Um, and I hit a roadblock with my Kelpie, um, massive roadblock where he became dangerous to himself and to other animals when he was off the lead um, and on our property as well. Um, so even just within the confines of, of our perimeter. So... I needed to make a choice. Do I risk him getting hurt or hurting something? Or do I look at other methods? And I decided to look at other methods and uh, settled on an e-collar. And that was quite a jump going from like, I didn't kind of gradually get into balance. I went from force free to an e-collar. I feel like it was quite a, quite a jump, um, but it's completely changed our lives like completely the stuff I can do with him now no chance I'd have been able to do with him before so um it's it's been a tough journey I've lost a lot of friends and you know people I thought were friends over it and that sort of thing because people don't agree with my decision um but he's living his best life now he is off lead anywhere it's appropriate to be and yeah he's happy um so yeah we we made that jump and it was pretty scary um but how old, is, how old is your dog he is now he's just about to turn three um so we went to an e-collar about a year ago so he was when he was about two 
Was there something in particular that happened that yeah. made you this decision or did it, was it just like a bunch of little things that kept occurring that were like close calls or, or something? A bit of both. So we've got sheep ourselves, um, which are behind a secure fence. And we are also surrounded by sheep, like around mm. our entire property. Um, and basically there was one day where he launched over the fence, over the stock fence, and he just tore after the sheep um and he has herding drive you know I'm, I'm well used to to working dogs and we um I work with a sheepdog trainer very closely um and he tried to bring one of the sheep down um so that was kind of one of the sort of catalysts um and we had a couple of situations where he managed to get off after deer um and there was one situation where he was on a long line because he chased and he still managed to get to get away after a deer so um those were probably the main issues we had his recall in any other context was amazing his recall mm. around dogs is amazing people any other scenario but wildlife and sheep were our primary issue and with the chasing itself especially with uh your sheep was it that he's actually trying to make contact with them and um, nip or bite them? Or is it yeah. just trying to herd them or even hold them in a corner? Yeah, no, he was, he's, he's a gripper. Um, he, okay. I mean, he's a Kelpie. If so you, your experience with Kelpies, he's, he's a hard headed dog. Um, mm -hmm. And my sheep are appropriate for my one border collie. They're very flighty. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very fast and he's not as confident. So he loves them because they're not confrontational sheep. For Evo, for the Kelpie, it becomes less herdy and it becomes far more um, frantic. So he will work or he would work very steady or confrontational sheep, no problem. But because those sheep would just bolt, mm -hmm. it was just a completely different sort of scenario. So there's an element of herding in there for sure. That's where it stems from originally, but it becomes dangerous um, to obviously to the sheep themselves. Yeah. And what made you, I guess, like, was there a process that you went through to make the decision uh, for for the uh, collar for yourself? And I ask this really because um, I know that this is a topic that is very um, controversial and, and yeah. people uh, get judged for it. So it's I want to discuss a lot of this stuff more because I want to hear from people on why did you make a decision like this? What were you doing uh, before? And what made you come to this place for yourself personally? So it's not uh, like, especially this episode's not meant for uh, judgment or anything like that. It's more of just kind of exploring to hear what someone like yourself has been through and what you have to say so that people can take it from kind of what they want to take it as. So yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. so I think... I didn't know a lot about them. I knew what certain people were promoting e-collars as, which was this, you know, medieval torture device that was going to like blast your dog with electricity. And that was my understanding. And because I, because I didn't want to use them, I never looked into it further. And then I thought, I can't even remember what I saw. I think I actually saw something from Jamie Penrith on YouTube, um, who is a fantastic e-collar trainer and advocate in the UK. And I watched some of his conditioning videos and I was like, oh, like, is that it? You know, I was, ex I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't a 
happy dog that I expected to see being conditioned to an e-collar. And it opened my eyes up because I was like, oh, actually this dog is happy and this dog is going to get the freedom it, you know, it, it needs, it wants. So it was at that point I thought, actually, maybe it's not this evil device that I've been led to believe it is. And actually maybe it was going to help me. It's going to serve a purpose here. Um, and for me, it was a question of, is it less ethical? What's the, what, which, am I better off having him on a lead for life? Is that ethical? Um, he's a dog with huge physical exercise requirements. Is that ethical? Um, I would argue no. Um, and an e-collar doesn't have to be conditioned in a really like aversive way. Like it doesn't have to be a super aversive tool. There's a multitude of ways of using it. Um, and it doesn't have to be this evil tool that it's kind of depicted to be. So I think when I realized that it opened my eyes up and I just kind of, I just went for it basically. Could you explain how you conditioned it maybe just so yeah. that we understand? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously it's important. It goes without saying it's important to do it obviously under the sort of eyes of someone that knows what they're doing. Um, but basically the sort of basic principle was just teaching him how to turn the pressure off. Um, so the pressure being the stim. Um, finding his working level. So I started on a mini, mini educator, which has a hundred levels and he was working on about a level five. Um, for context, if you try that on your own hand, you're probably looking at about 15 before you feel anything. So he was on a low level. Um, so essentially it was just working through his recall that he already had, pairing it with the stim and teaching him how to turn that off. Um, and that's and that's a very obviously short version of what we did. Um, very much sort of followed like Larry Crone's kind of methods. Um, and that's got us where we are today. How long did it take you to condition it where you were comfortable? Because especially, I would imagine, especially coming from a force-free background, you're um you're gonna be maybe a little more sensitive to yeah. wanting to do this. Um, cause yeah. I know that's how my mind would work yeah. coming from yeah. that type of background as well. So I would imagine that I would be a little more, um, nervous or hyper aware of like taking yeah. my time yeah. because I don't want to fuck something up. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. Um, so I can't, I mean, the, the sort of conditioning process kind of you know, it, it's, the, it's the usual, you know, you start with low distraction and you kind of build it up and then you've got to take it out somewhere higher distraction and stuff. So I'd say to get to a point where I was comfortable that he fully understood exactly what it meant, like exactly what it meant in, in high distraction environments, I would say we were looking at about six weeks to eight weeks, something like that. Um, I mean, and maybe, so just to clarify, I meant like, um, that makes sense to me, but I was saying more like when you first... I guess, put it on your dog okay. and introduced it. Yeah. Um, I'd say a week, maybe-ish. We were doing like a few sessions a day. Um, and, you know, at that stage, because it was super low level, it wasn't as daunting as I thought it was going to be. Like the first time I put it on him and pressed that button, um, I was terrified. And then I realized it's really not that bad at all. Um, you know, there's no... There's no negative reactions from the dog whatsoever. It's essentially like a tap on the shoulder. So that stage probably about a week. Okay, got it, got it. So now moving like fast forwarding to where you are now. Um, and this is a question for like more curiosity because it's something that crosses my mind a lot. And Vinny can maybe, uh, you know, jump in on this as well. But 
So one of the things in your initial post was you said something to the effect of you could have your dog in like your garden or yard area and have your dog on lead, but you felt it was unfair. Yeah. And so I guess like a little pushback on that type of comment to me, my head goes, well, what about like with the e-collar, doesn't the dog know one that the collar is on? Yeah. Is it kind of like almost an extension of having a lead on? Like, is the dog actually fully feeling free to run and do what it wants until you call them? Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I don't I know if I'm, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but I'm just, in my head, I'm I'm just thinking like, okay. Is it freedom? So if is the dog the, that right. Gonna get yeah. right? Is it, the dog actually yeah. free, or is it psychologically like mm -hmm. kind of playing with the dog a little bit, where the yeah. dog knows, okay, I'm like not fully free. I gotta like kind of watch where I'm going um, yeah. to some degree. It's 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 one that I hear a lot, and I do understand like that side of things. So, firstly, with the whole, does the dog know if the collar is on or off? very much depends how you condition it. So um, most trainers will recommend that the dog wears the collar for a good while before it's even turned on. Mm -hmm. um, it just becomes, you know, sort of just part of something the dog wears. Um, it is possible to become too reliant on the e-collar 100%. And I think some people possibly jump to the e-collar before the dog actually knows what recall is. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're kind of taking that stance on things, I think you run the risk of relying on the e-collar. He had incredible recall. I'm going to be that person. He had incredible recall, but in certain situations, he didn't. Um, but he understood. He understood what he had value in his recall. So it wasn't a case of teaching him something new with the e-collar. It was just proofing something he already knew. Um, now, in the garden, he never had his e-collar on, ever. Literally ever. He goes outside. He um, Even when the sheep are running, he's got no... He's aware and he's allowed to look like I don't... I don't say he has to walk around with blinkers on and he can't look. He's allowed to look. Um, he's not allowed to chase, basically. Um, and he can do that in the garden, no problem. Um, I popped some videos up the other week of when I forgot to put a Z collar on and we stumbled across two herds of deer, which is, you know, my worst nightmare. <laughs> um, recalled off them. Um, that was with no collar on. Um, so... It depends how you train it. It depends how you condition it. It depends whether you go down the recall route or the animal aversion route. There's lots of there's lots of caveats to that. It's potentially the case if it's done poorly. I would say that your argument is correct, but I think if it's done properly, that shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I was gonna add that if you aren't clear and consistent with when the collar is going to be used and you create a dog that is walking on eggshells of like, I don't understand where this is coming from. I don't know why it's happening. Or if you're like correcting a dog for something that maybe it's not even fully aware of, you know, then you have that classic dog that's maybe shut down or acts different once the e-collar is on or is you know, inhibiting its no like normal movements because it seems like it's trying to avoid this thing that's maybe unavoidable because they don't fully understand, yeah, you know, why they're getting the corrections, which I think is a real danger 
and the e-collar lends itself really well to that because it's a sensation that dogs don't feel normally you know like you can accidentally step on your dog's leash or pop them on the collar on accident and it's like a thing that they've felt since very early on whereas like the e-collar is very new so it's easy to kind of create that type of an association yeah definitely and that's where if the conditioning process is done wrong it can absolutely cause headaches um and i always say like with evo unless i told you he had an e-collar on you would have no idea he behaves no differently with it on versus with it off he behaves no differently now to how he did 18 months ago in terms of his demeanor obviously he now behaves better but his whole demeanor is exactly the same so if you didn't see the equaler you wouldn't think that dog is walking on eggshells he knows what's expected he always has a chance to avoid the stim so you know if he if he chooses to ignore a recall and blow me off then he knows what's going to come but he knows exactly how to switch the stim off and by returning the moment he turns to come back the stim switches off so that's why in the conditioning process, it's so important to teach the dog how to switch that sensation off. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there's some talks of conditioning and low level versus never using a low level. And the maybe I, I'd like to hear your view on this because um, I personally feel that an e-collar just like any other tool can be used in various different ways at the same time. And it's completely fine. Like, I don't think it's, it has to be one way or the other. I can, I'm not saying I'm going to do this personally, but I can use a leash to gently guide a dog in a positive way. I could use a leash and pop a dog with a leash, right? Like it, like one of them is a positive thing. One of them is maybe not a positive um, feeling for the dog, but the tool is the same. So, you know, with the low level, with the low level stim where it is more of a signal and assuming that the, the dog is feeling the sensation and the dog is not perceiving that sensation as aversive when you are conditioning it um you do have to maybe you don't depending on the dog but for some dogs there is there is a point where you need to go from the dog is perceiving this sensation almost like a signal you know like you could put an e-collar on a dog and do a very 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 low level tap and then follow it with food and create almost the a conditioned reinforcer like the dog feels that almost like a clicker um with your case you do have to get to a point where then the dog wants to turn the sensation off right versus the dog is just has just learned that that tap is like a reinforcer itself do you know what i mean yeah. so i feel like this is where as someone that has been exploring e-collars more recently and and my youngest dog now has been conditioned from an early age i sometimes almost want to push back against the notion of like oh it's not uncomfortable because like sometimes it has to be if if i'm using it in the way that i might have to use it and in fact i often find some of the issues occur more when like the dog isn't perceiving it as uncomfortable yeah. Yeah. right or like now like 
when I first started using it, I was like, oh, man, I got to be really careful. This is that big, bad medieval tool. And then I was like, oh, no, my dog is feeling the stim in its neck and like getting more amped about the thing I'm trying to make them not amped about because now it's becoming this like conditioned reinforcer. So I know I just, you know, went off on a kind of tangent and touched a bunch of different things. But, um, you know, your overall thoughts of that, I guess, in summary of like, you do have to eventually transfer over with most dogs to a point where like yeah this is something that they want to shut off so like now you're in a negative reinforcement contingency like they're trying to escape this pressure um so I guess your thoughts on that and then if you ever do use the same tool as maybe you know just strictly positive punishment like maybe a higher level like hey you know I don't want you to do that um versus like this like almost conditioned reinforcer like signal that just lets the dog know like oh like I felt this thing on my neck I'm gonna go get a cookie yeah yeah it's it's a it's a tricky one because I think people do try and like like you said almost say oh there's never any discomfort involved and I think there's a difference between discomfort and pain and that's where Mm -hmm people jump to the fact that they think this is just used as a painful tool. Um, I would say that very much it is used in certainly my case, in a case of he's learned to switch that off. He obviously knows he's getting a reward at the end um, and he's paid every single time. um, But ultimately that's how the conditioning process started. You can definitely, I know people do use it in lots of different ways. For me personally, I only use it because I need to, whereas a lot of people, particularly in sport, will use them to, you know, improve behavior. I, I don't know. I'm not going to talk on, you know, the bike sports and stuff because I don't know how they're used in that context, but that's something I'm less comfortable with. Um, I'm more comfortable from a point of view of teaching him to switch that off. He wants to get away from that discomfort, but the alternative discomfort is being shot or being run over or, you know, so in, in that situation, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's weighing up weighing up those options and weighing yeah and I feel like that's really fair I feel like sometimes and like I know that some dog trainers are guilty of putting so much fear into people to kind of rationalize things but dogs do run away a lot and dogs do get hit by cars and dogs do chase other dogs and I I am personally someone that likes to prepare for things right I'm not saying I have like a zombie apocalypse bunker under my house although I wish I kind of did sometimes I get ads for them on Instagram now (laughs) so you can make a bomb shelter for 300 grand no but like I do like to be prepared like I've you know I used to do martial arts I like self-defense I like just being prepared and and yeah my mind does go places sometimes where it's like when the worst case happens like what am I gonna do like I try not to let it destroy my life and like live in anxiety and fear but you know, it is kind of nice because, you know, I know like the e-collar could fail. Like that's another thing that we might talk about is like sometimes I feel like with clients that I've had that have had them, um, it almost becomes this like false sense of like, you know, they think they're invincible. (laughs) And I think that's enough because look at sometimes the, the contacts get messed up. Sometimes the dog gets, you know, clipped on a bush and the collar falls off or sometimes you forgot to turn the receiver on or the battery dies or whatever it might be you know so like I think you still have to be very responsible and and realize that it's just another layer of defense you know against some of the things that you're talking about yeah 100%. can I just I just want to um just for the listeners for a second for those maybe who don't uh, understand all this when you're saying uh 
turning the collar off basically or escaping it, it's because you're using um, a continuous um, pressure with the with the stim, yeah. uh, correct? Yeah. So it's yeah. continuously doing it until uh, yeah. the, the so dog responds. There's different means, there's different means. Some people just use the neck function. So just like, literally it's just like a sort of one little, yeah. one little stim. Um, I've always used it continuous. Um, initially as well you tend to they recommend you use a long line as well or a lead so you you can use a bit of lead pressure as well just to help the dog out mm -hmm. sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt you Vinny yeah no um yeah so I I've done similar and I I did teach a lot of things that I was going to use the e-collar with um with like leash pressure stuff so the dog kind of was already used to you know, turning pressure on and off at a very low level. And then, like you said, pairing, pairing the e-collar with that. Um, so a question that I had for you is, do you, um, do you have a special, like a recall word that you reserve for if you're going to be using the e-collar or do you just layer the e-collar over like maybe the recall that you taught using positive reinforcement? Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. So his recall cue was very strong already. So I just layered it over the top of that. I think if I had poisoned it more, then potentially I would have used a different word. But I think I would always use my dog's primary recall command with the collar. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, because that's something that I've that I've thought of and um, thought about. And with my dog, I've actually done... Um, like I taught, I kind of taught them like separately so that I can have. You taught so like sometimes, what did you teach separately? Yeah. Like, okay. like I taught an emergency, like my emergency recall cue has the e-collar contingency attached to it. Whereas mm -hmm. I have a recall that doesn't have that contingency. Um, you know, cause sometimes, sometimes I see people be like, I have an emergency recall, right? But then like the contingency that they have set up for the emergency recall is the same as their regular recall. Yeah. So like, I always thought, and like, look, I'm not making fun of anyone. I did the same thing, right? Like I, like, I would be like, oh, I'm gonna have this special emergency word. But then I realized like the rewarding process and what I'm doing with it is exactly the same. Like maybe I get higher <laughs> value treats, yeah. but like at the end of the day, like my dog required really high value treats normally. And then like, really, where am I going on that? So it's like, just another recall and like maybe if I use it less frequently it makes it more fun but I was like I don't know like this is kind of confusing like I feel like I'm teaching this thing that's different but it's really the same um and then at the same time you see um and rightfully so people worried that like what if I poison like if I have this recall cue like if I, if I have a recall cue that's positively reinforced i want it to basically mean like yo come to me and like the best things are coming your way it feels kind of weird that like but if you don't i'm gonna point the gun at you and be like dude you better you know what i mean so like my thought was like hey if i'm gonna use this tool which again i'm just being kind of honest which is kind of like hey i'm not and then this is where like the, almost like my recall cue is a cue when I'm using an e-collar, it's more of a command, meaning like, hey, if you don't, like, there is going to be a consequence and it's unavoidable. So I was like, I don't want to mess up my like happy because just like you, I had a very positive like recall that was like 100% built on 
toys and food and play i was like i don't want to like lose that and i also don't want to be walking around like you know threatening the dog all the time back to like what anthony said of like how do you have the dog that like is still happy and joyful and like not like walking on eggshells and stuff and and i just wanted to hear your thoughts of like completely compartmentalizing the e-collar separately as like i'm gonna teach I'm going to teach two recalls. I could have a a recall that's contingent on positive reinforcement only. And then I can have this other recall that is just being kind of honest with you, dude. Like, hey, dude, you can't chase a car into the street. And like, I'm not even going to, you know, tempt you with a good time. Like, it is just going to be like, you're going to get pressure if you don't listen to this word. Um, so yeah, that, that's something that I've done and I, and I feel like it is nice to kind of separate them. So just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's interesting actually. It's not something that I've really thought of doing. So I just layered it, like I say, over his existing queue. I haven't noticed, the reason I don't have an issue with what, the way I've done it is that I haven't noticed an, any kind of change in his whole demeanor surrounding his recall. He's equally as you know, he's not coming with his tail tucked and kind of like, oh, I best come back just in case. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, he still comes back with the same enthusiasm. Um, so it's an interest. It's an interesting thought. I can absolutely see how that could work. Um, for me, it's more about just keeping things simple, black and white. Um, my recall cue isn't generally. It's either use places where I know that he's going to respond or it's used places where he's wearing his e-collar. So if I'm in any doubt about him responding, he's either on a flexi or a long line, or he's on an e-collar. Um, so to me, it's a, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I, I think- yeah, I'm wondering, I'm on it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to follow up with a question for you, Vinny, but go ahead. Sorry about that. All right. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you... Have you since um, have you since using the e-collar been in a situation where um, the e like you needed to use the e-collar like for real like where the dog was fully committed on something and then the only thing that stopped your dog was wanting to turn off the pressure instead where like you feel like he got like corrected like a legitimate correction not just like a conditioning type of thing. And so like, what did that, like, what did that, like, did he kind of turn around and go, oh, you got me and like looked happy or did he look like, what did that look like? Like, um, so the first time that I had to use it like for real um, on something other than a low level was when we were walking in the forest and a deer decided to run out two meters in front of us, like right in front. Um, and it's one of those situations where there's no time to react. He's reacted well before I can even register it's there. So he had his first higher level correction. And I would say it was a correction in that in that instance. Um, you know, there's no point beating around the bush. It was. Mm-hmm. But again, it was a case of correction or run to the forest and yeah. knows what. Um, and um, the little deer that we have here, the little muntjacks, they have these horrendous tusks as well in the rockets. <laughs> ripping dogs apart oh my they have god that's terrifying dogs. so yeah they're like little and cute but they're they're not <laughs> um so that was the first time so yes in that moment he was like shit shouldn't have done that um so yeah i would say in that particular instance it wasn't a happy response it was literally just uh, what we like like a nick it wasn't a continuous pressure it was enough for him to go whoops shouldn't have done that come back and then when he did come back 
he got his usual rewards and we carried on. There was no shut down blog afterwards, shook it off, was like, cool, yeah, carried on his walk, off lead, no issues. Yeah, and I think that's sometimes like, you know, when, I, when I'm doing it, like the things that where I get like aware of and I have to be careful is when you take that jump, you're conditioning it low level and then you start actually needing it. I feel, and I think this is the main argument um, against the low level stuff, which, which is, you know, you're, you're working them at a level five and then like he sees a deer. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to go up to a 10 because he sees a deer, but it's kind of this like arbitrary number. And then like, if he doesn't feel it, it's like, oh, then I'm going to go to a 15 and then a 20. And then you gradually start going up. And then what you're really doing is again, you're like conditioning the dog to almost just start getting used to like a very gradual increase and the next thing you know you're like stimming your dog on a hundred and like its neck is twitching but it's not responding um you know and and now you're in this situation where even this tool doesn't work you know and that kind of goes back to the idea of like it's just this magical easy tool that was kind of my view on it too. Like when I didn't, when I was in like in what you were describing like your situation before you really knew much about it, I was like, oh, this is like this cheat tool that's so easy and it's just like going to solve all the issues. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh wow, like you, it actually requires a ton of thoughtfulness. Yeah. I feel like out of all the tools, it's one of the hardest um, to kind of completely understand and get good at. Um, and I have to be the most thoughtful about. Um, you know, which I think is why there's so much negativity around it. Because if someone does just pick it up off of a yeah. shelf and throw it on their dog, yeah. like, whoa, like the amount of things that can go wrong. Yeah, or, exactly. you know, I think I think another thing people don't appreciate is the way that the levels of adrenaline in the dog can affect how the dog feels something. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what they feel, say, at a level five, for example, which might be their standard kind of working level in a low distraction environment Let's say you have to crank that up to 20, for example, if like a rabbit or something runs out in front. Well, actually, if that dog's adrenaline is spiked, the way that the dog is feeling it isn't necessarily more than they would feel a level five at a lower adrenaline level. So that's another thing a lot of people don't bear in mind is the fact that the adrenaline levels will have a huge impact on. And sometimes it's actually the opposite where like when the dog is super amped up a lower level will actually the way I think of it is like if like right now it's the middle of the day I'm talking to you guys if there's like a crack in my house like I hear like creaking around I won't be worried but if it's like two o'clock in the morning and it's dark and I just watched a horror movie and I hear like a creak upstairs like I'm gonna be like oh my god what was that you know it's so like I've seen that also where like when the dog is you know, either very focused on something or, you know, depending on the dog, where like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, like a lower level is I have kind a of your, your, yeah. So how do you, um, I, and I want to go back to the emergency recall thing because I had a couple questions on that. But so let's say you're like what you guys are saying, you're at a level five and then the dog sees a rabbit and five isn't going to necessarily maybe work. I don't know. And you need to jump to 10 or 20. How do you maybe avoid having to go higher? Because it sounds like what you're saying is you can get to a bad place where the you need to eventually start using higher and higher levels because the dog's getting used to or conditioned to that. So how do you avoid that then? That's not something that I've experienced personally. Obviously, my pool of e-collared dogs is smaller than some. Um 
say if you are incrementally increasing, so say for example, your dog has given chase on something and then you go up five and up five and up five, that's when you potentially run into issues. Whereas actually, and this is where the skill comes in, is it's knowing what's an appropriate higher level that isn't too much, but is enough to stop the dog at the same time. So um, my argument has always been, I would rather use a slightly higher level, and I'm not talking about cranking it all the way up, but a slightly higher level and use it less frequently than be nagging. The last thing I want to be doing is nagging the dog. Um, so it's dog dependent, and that's where working with a good trainer will really help because obviously a, a trainer that's experienced in using e-collars can very much say you know they can assess your dog and they can see and um they will know roughly what levels are going to work and that sort of thing um and that's that is where some of the issue lies with e-collars is the fact that the average pet owner um it's a very difficult thing to navigate particularly if it's prey drive because stuff pops up and you don't have any time to think about it you have you know, 0.5 seconds to think, what am I going to do? Um, so it's not something I've experienced, but I think it's something that could definitely happen again if the conditioning process isn't done thoroughly and properly. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, that like during the conditioning process too, or if I'm on a dog that I don't really, I haven't been in situations where it's been tested fully. Like obviously there's a long line on the dog. Yeah. There's other tools on the dog. I'm not just going to like, do a, a conditioning phase with a dog for a week or two and then be in the woods with deer, like off leash, mm -hmm. you know? So like, again, I think that's another, like, I, I'd like to touch on a lot of the, because it's going to sound like a completely pro e-collar uh, podcast, but there are so many bad things that we do, like doing that, like doing a conditioning phase in your in your kitchen and then going out in the woods and having your dog off leash you know, like now what happens or not conditioning at all and putting the e-collar on because like, oh, well, I don't want to use it unless I need it. And then now you never press the button ever. And then your dog is chasing a deer in the woods and then you blast it super high. This is what like a lot of, you know, like pet, pet dog clients will, will tell me they did, right? Like they got the e-collar. They don't, of course, I'm not going to use it. Why would I ever press it if I don't need it? Like, I don't want to, you know, they don't want to hurt their dogs. They're doing it because they love their dogs. They don't want their dog to run away, but now they have this tool on their dog and their dog chases something in the woods. And then they start screaming at them. And then they start pressing this button that the dog's never felt before. And then the dog runs away further and just doesn't want to come back, yeah. you know? So like, those are all considerations that you have to, you have to think about. And that's why, you know, at least my conditioning, I spent months and months and months, you know, probably longer than I should have just being as careful as I could. Um, so that I knew my dog and knew how he would react to certain things and, and setting him up not to fail. Like, I think it's not, I'm not setting my dog up to fail. Like, haha, I'm going to do this thing. So I get to shock my dog. Like that wasn't the thing. It was more of like, you know, I want to make sure that the brakes are working before I put the, you know, car on the track type of thing. It makes me think about, so it makes me think about even just, let's say putting this tool aside for a second and you're walking in the woods and you can't fully trust the dog. So you have a long line on and maybe you get to a point where you feel like you could even drop the leash and let it just kind of drag around because I know we've kind of all been there and done that. 
and then you accidentally step on the lead um, or maybe, you know, the dog just wants to sniff and pulls off to the side, you're holding it and the dog hits the end of the lead. I just kind of think about that for a second because I, I think like that becomes like some, like if you step on the leash, let's just say, and the dog like stops abruptly I know for me, my knee jerk reaction is, oh, I'm so sorry. Like you feel bad, you know, like you, you really do genuinely feel bad. So I was with one of my clients one day and I stepped on his lead and um, he just looked back at me. and was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I don't know why, but it, then it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, dummy. Like, why don't I just condition this to mean something? Why don't I just teach the dog that like, if, if I happen to accidentally step on your lead, when like kind of means like come back to me or look at me and I can reward you. So now when I do it with that dog, if I do happen to accidentally step on his long line, if I do it, he feels that he immediately comes running back to me like so joyously. And so I guess my point is I'm just thinking about that because a lot of people like myself who came from like a more force-free background, like that happens sometimes. And you don't necessarily think to maybe like condition something like that, or you don't even think about, oh, well, why is that okay? I step on the leash and the dog might not like that. Like I know one of my dogs in particular wouldn't like that. He'll kind of get a little nervous actually, if you step on a long line by accident. Why is that okay? But like the the other tools are kind of looked at almost as this like bad thing. Does that make, do, am I making sense a little bit? Like in terms of like the pro, like it's more the process of how we as into like people yeah. are viewing this, yeah. if that makes sense. It's a human issue, a hundred percent. I've got one of my guys, if I step on his long line, it's the most aversive thing I could ever do to him. Like he will full mm. blown shut down um not because he's ever had anything negative done with the lead right. but just for him that's like if he's not if he's not expecting that and you know it gets caught on a route or I step on it literally yeah. like that like, no um and it's a hundred percent a human issue if we attach these human emotions and human feelings to our dogs and prongs and e-collars look evil so it's like they must be bad and I think that's where a lot of it stems from um, is the fact that we, it's the way they look. I think if they didn't yeah. look the way they look or they weren't marketed the way they're marketed, it would make a big difference. Um, you know, it's ultimately a lot of people don't like this, but it is the dog that chooses what's aversive. You know, like you said, yeah. it's the dog that freak out yeah. if their long line or their leader stepped on or that sort of thing, that dog has decided that that isn't, you know mm -hmm. something that they're scared of or you know some dogs don't like a harness you know it doesn't it doesn't matter what it is it's it's you can condition any tool properly and that includes you guys with harnesses collars anything or you can condition them really badly and and you know it's it's just yeah it, it's weird I, and i think to be i think to be fair though like i don't know e-collars i i just feel like are easily abused yeah. I think it was because, like, Jack. before. I think like what you said before is it's looked at almost like, oh, well, my dog is not recalling well. And now it's looked at this magical tool that's going to fix everything. Yeah. And I think it was a uh, Jack was saying at, at his seminar that like 
if you were to use leash pressure, for example, or like pull a dog on their leash, like just, you know, say you have a dog that's pulling and you kind of yank them a little bit to get them to follow you. If you have to increase the pressure of leash pressure, like you need to physically like yank your dog harder. And like most people like will feel bad. Like they're not going to like yank their dog like really hard to the point that it's like an abusive like yank. But with an e-collar, like pressing the button on a level one and then pressing a button on a level 100 like feels the same for you. Like Mm -hmm. there's not that like emotional component to the correction. So it kind of allows the user to be very like separated from like what the correction feels like giving it to the dog. Cause like you're just pressing a button, you know? And I think, you know, that's something to think about because you know, we're all, we're all dog trainers that are very thoughtful and we're thinking about this stuff deeply, right? Like we're sitting here having a podcast about dog training. Some people just have a dog, quite frankly, that's pissing them off and they're like, oh, I could get a thing and just press a button. And then the dog shuts down in fear and is like shaking in the corner. And then to them, they're like, oh, well, he's not doing the thing anymore. So like that worked. And I feel like, you know, that's the dark side of that, of like just creating this dog that's shut down. And like, unfortunately, a shut down dog sometimes looks like a dog that's behaving because it's not doing anything, you yeah. know? But yeah, again, I... like, sorry. No, go ahead. It's, it's another prime example though is, you know, for example, head collars, um, you see a lot of dogs that are walking around oh, yeah. and they're clawing, they're getting their claws, and they're like, <laughs> definitely trying to get it off. And in society that is deemed okay. That's okay. Yeah, don't get us started with head collars. We've talked about head collars here before. <laughs> like the whole head co- head collar versus prong collar debate. Yeah, they're, they're, I, I use head collars if a prong doesn't work. <laughs> if someone comes to me for the first time and they have a prong on their dog and they're like, my dog is pulling me and I look at them I'm like, oh shit, they already have a prong. What am I supposed to do? It's like, okay, we got to start conditioning a head collar. You know, like it is definitely more aversive in my but book. Again, it's, it's how they look. I think that's what it comes down to is they look they look harmless don't they gentle leader or you know whatever brand it is they sound yeah. nice they look okay they look just like what people use on a horse like it's the whole perception is different and i think that's that's where it stems from people aren't actually looking at the dog's behavior a lot of the time dogs wearing head collars are very shut down and that's why they're no longer pulling because they haven't been conditioned to it and they don't know they just find it uncomfortable and you know annoying and they freeze yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and it's 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 just it's it's how they look. I think that's all it comes down to is how how something looks. Yeah, you know, that, I guess that's what I was getting at before. Is I think sometimes we we look at something and perceive it as this one way. Like that was, I guess, my point about my example before. It's stepping on the long line is you step on it and like the dog gets a little nervous or maybe like it gets caught on like a a root on the path or something and they get pulled back. And it was an accident, whereas like, but the reality in many respects, and I understand the argument can be, but you know, it's different than if the dog was on a prong collar or on an e-collar and you stimmed them. But why, I understand that. But at the same time, why aren't we then thinking about, hey, why don't we condition this then? Why don't we condition maybe that through teaching the concept of leash pressure, like the, the Labrador that I was telling you I was working with. I was doing a lot of off-leash work with him and I would once in a while I would just step on his long line, you know, just not really noticing that it was there and and he would then get pulled back because I stepped on. I was like, why am I not teaching him this is a cue to mean something then? 
So that way it's not just this random thing that happens. And I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. Like the dog really understands that I'm, you know, freaking apologizing to him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh, sorry, buddy. You know, let me... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted and to. It, uh, oh. I just wanted to on that because it's related to what you were just saying is I think the the argument to that might be you know with an e-collar you are deliberately potentially setting up or conditioning your dog to deal with discomfort and like you're you're deciding and then this is this is also related to why I had that pushback before of just like oh it's it's just you know it's just a tap 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 and it's not it's not really that bad or whatever like that like no it's like I mean maybe I'm just speaking for myself but I wanted to have a way to have a consequence with my dog where look there's going to be something discomfort discomfortable is that a word am i speaking anthony yeah i don't know what not comfortable whatever whatever like discomfortable <laughs> that's a new one that's a new one i'm gonna copyright that one it's yeah. a new seminar that, coming up yeah that discomfortable in dogs how to make your dog discomfortable um now I'm going to lose where I am. Yeah, like I am I am deciding that based on maybe risks or fear or my own personal dog or things that I want to be able to do with my dog, like hiking off leash, but I don't want my dog to charge after a deer and get lost or charge after a dog and get in a fight, that I'm going to intentionally use a tool that might cause my dog to feel, you know, discomfort, right? Um. And it's not just going to be sunshine and rainbows because like we were saying before is like, I don't want maybe to counter condition the, the e-collar to be just positive things. Cause then the dog is just going to blow it off. And like, I think that's what happens when you, the dog starts chasing a thing and you start stimming it and then it gets to the thing. Like now you're turning the e-collar stim into an activator, which is like, you know, to what your point is, some people do that in sport on purpose where they actually use the e-collar to get the dog excited and, and jazzed up and pumped up. And like maybe for a sport context, like, yeah, that's beneficial. But if you're trying to teach, you know, buddy not to go chase the poodle down the street, now you're creating this, you're pouring gasoline on a fire, which again, like, that's why we hear these stories. So I think that's what happens sometimes. You know, people put the e-collar on their dog, they press the button, and the dog gets to the thing. And now you have this this tool that's going to get them jacked up. It's like it's like a nitrous oxide button in a car for your dog with the with the e-collar. Um, so, yeah, that was just kind of my thoughts on that. It was like, when do we decide that, like, I am intentionally going to maybe subject my dog to something that's not comfortable? And then then the ethics to me lie in like, and what you're saying is, is this going to benefit my dog in the long run? Like, am I using an e-collar? Cause I want my like hyper Labrador to lay down on a mat while I'm at the, at the coffee shop. Or am I using it because I want him to be able to run off leash in the woods? Like, am I trying to come up with unreasonable expectations? Am I putting an e-collar in my, on my dog in my house and just shocking him for going on the counter, jumping on me, going after the cat, doing this. And then the dog is basically shivering in the corner on a mat. Or is like my dog's life overall improved by this tool? Um, and I'm not just using it like to make my life easier because I'm lazy, you know? 
Yeah. I just want everyone to know that they're shaking their head yes, because I know you can't hear anything, and I'm not just standing here like an idiot. (laughs) I I was so it's funny. I I was waiting. I didn't know if uh, I didn't know if I was going to respond or not. So what I was going to say, um, what I was going to say is, Vinny, you're an idiot. No. um, Yeah. No. What I was going to say is, I think the other thing too, which is, which we have to keep in mind, is we are a lot of us go into homes and we see the local dog trainer who uses the tool without being thoughtful or intentional about it. And I know as I say that, I I can hear uh, the voices of people who don't uh, believe the use of certain tools. I know like what I just said sounds ridiculous, uh, to those individuals, but we go into homes and we see like that these trainers don't use it in a thoughtful or intentional manner. They just throw the the tool on the dog to address like what Vinny just said. Well, the owner's pissed off because the dog is jumping on the counter or is going to dart out the door. So let's just use it for that. And then, oh, you know what? It worked for this. Can we use it for that? Oh, can we use it for that? And it becomes something that's either overused or it's not used thoughtfully where, like Vinny was saying before, he, you know, when he was conditioning his, one of his dogs, it took months and he took a very slow process and thought about using a separate cue so that the cue for recall that he taught using positive reinforcement and play, et cetera, wasn't poisoned. And a lot of the time, and I can speak from experience, a lot of the time when I go into a home, the trainers who are using tools local to me aren't thoughtful that way. They're putting this tool on the dog and, oh, we can stop the dog's reactivity. Let's put this, like I I know there's a company near me that let's put the prong collar and the e-collar on together and we're going to use it at the same time to stop a dog reacting towards another dog, for example. And so you see a lot of these like, you know, horror stories or situations that are not thoughtful. And yeah, no wonder, like, of course, people are going to bash uh, this tool because there are a lot of people out there that are just dumbasses, quite honestly, (laughs) when, when, you know, we go into these homes and I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure both of you go into homes and you're like, like, why is the dog even on this in the first place? Or why did they choose to do it this way when they could have used it in a more thoughtful or intentional manner? Um, or why did they use it at all? Why why didn't they just do whatever, you know? That's uh, where it gets a bad name from, is it just being used, like you say, as like a convenience tool, mm-hmm. almost like remote control dog. And this is where I think the the sort of ethics of of when do you use an e-collar is really hard because obviously it's used very widely particularly in sports and stuff and obviously like you say with a lot of trainers that are just whacking them on for the sake of it to me i think it's it's not ever going to be something i would ever jump to as my first port of call it's always something that is weighed up against against the risk to the dog so if the dog is a danger to itself or others um and other methods are not working um that's when an e-collar is appropriate in my opinion just whacking it on for the sake of it it can be done properly still but is it is it the right context to use that tool 
I yeah, want... and I mean, a lot of times. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you could ask. You could ask. No, because it's separate. Ask, from this, so go ahead. No, no, it's okay, Vinny. Go ahead. All right, just want to be kind of I know I do I that. Like I know the beard's coming back. I know I just kind of trimmed it. I got nothing yeah, to go. I don't know. I, I was going to say, I was going to say too, like, I wish, like, what I personally do, the, the number one tool that I feel like is misused, probably with all dog owners from day one, is a leash. I knew you were going to say You that. know, <laughs> I, I say it, I'll say it again. Like, the first thing I do now when I go into a home with even like yesterday, I was, I was with an eight week old puppy was like little baby leash pressure stuff, like the smallest little things. Nothing bad, not negative reinforcement, but because they're putting the dog on a leash and the stuff I see is like terrifying. I'm like, oh my God. Like what like you're, you're like I used to I I mean I, I still teach puppy classes, but before um I did leash pressure work, the stuff that was going on in puppy class, which is why I was actually motivated to start teaching this, is like I'm worried about tools and this and that. And like what to do and being ethical. And I'm like watching dogs being yanked and strangled and pulled in close while other dogs are coming over and they're nervous of them. And it's like, it's like this crazy tool. We all just throw on our dogs and we don't think about, you know, and that's why I think, you know, teaching your dog and conditioning them on just the leash that you're caught, like collar conditioning, leash conditioning, you know, from day one. And then to your, to your point, um, Abby with, uh, like when, when to do it or going to it first is like, if I can't even get that stuff through to someone, like, no way I'm going to start teaching you how to use an electric collar. Like if you can't even like, you know, use leash pressure in a certain way, or, you know, you're like your body pressure, just timing of your marker words. Like there's so many other things. Um, and, and the good thing back to your point too, is like, a lot of times when I have people do all of that stuff, great. They don't even need, they don't even think about using, using the collar. Um, and I know me personally too, like I use the collar for some stuff in sport just because of the remote aspect of it, of me being able to communicate to my dog from very far away. So it's not like aversive. It's just, it's just, I'm able to give him communication from a distance but like, if someone took it away, like I don't need them in my house, like for my day to day, am I walking my dogs and living in the house with them? Like I never, like, I don't even dream about it. Like I don't need it for anything. Like there's not a reason I would use it. Um, you know, so I feel like with, with clients, aside from the ones that go on and are very advanced and are just natural, like we all have those amazing clients that are not that they're not all amazing. We have those clients that almost become like mini dog trainers with you right where it's like you're like damn you're like they almost like re, re revive the the spirit in you to want to be a dog trainer because you're like damn look how like you know it's almost you're like watching yourself as an early dog trainer in your client um and those are the clients where yeah if they've been working with you for a while and they have a dog they love and you know they're coming from the right place and like hey their dog ran away and they want to use a tool like that's you know that's kind of what i would be looking for if i you know where to be where to be venturing off to this i don't know if we have anything else to add <laughs> i'm uh, sorry guys we, it was like a good we went off on a lot of tangents. yeah no that's fine i don't know how to go off from that so i guess uh abby it's your turn no i'm kidding <laughs> um i think abby usually wraps up every week so uh... <laughs> so all right. Well, that was, that was, uh, all right. So that was, uh, some good information. <laughs> this is great. I love this. I part we're going with that. So, <laughs> this is so good. I we're love it. Good night, 
leave it right in. We're not even cutting it out. So this is gonna be the just, end, right? Like, we don't right, know where to end. I guess I guess this is just part one. We'll have Abby on in a few weeks <laughs> for the rest of this conversation. I feel like I could just keep going. Sorry guys, it's the morning. We usually do this at like ten o'clock at night and I can't wait to get off, but like I just drank like caffeine and I'm like <laughs> ready to go. But we were just uh we were just trying to figure out like how to end uh from there. So anyway, well uh Abby, thank you very much for coming on this is a great conversation um tell everyone where they can where they can find you and and if they want to reach out to you how they can do that um easiest place is probably to come on instagram so it's particularly on instagram so it's p-a-w-t-i-c-u-l-a-r-l-y um that's probably the easiest place okay cool and we will have uh in the show notes we'll have Uh, a link to your website and your Instagram directly. So you guys can go on there and um, reach out to her if you want. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.